Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Orthopod. My name is Mo Bendari, the Editor-in-Chief of OrthoEvidence. And I have with me again, Professor Rebecca Ivers, who, as you may recall from a previous podcast, April 30th, or roughly around there, um, she's head of the School of Public Health and Community Medicine at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Welcome, Rebecca, and thanks for coming back and uh, talking to us a little bit more about what's happening in Australia. So do tell, do tell what's Hi, happening. Uh, how are you? <laughs> Lovely to be here again. It's nice to see you. Um, and it's somewhat unusual circumstances. I can't remember where we were last time I talked to you, but we were feeling like we were well under control of the um, epidemic in Australia. But of course, now things have changed quite dramatically and we're right in the middle of a sort of pretty, pretty intense second wave. Um, so that's what we're grappling with at the moment. So can I just actually clarify terminology with you? Because, you know, I'm hearing the word um, second wave used a lot in many places in, you know, in, you know, sort of North America or South America, where they say, well, you know, uh, we've had it. And when you look at the data, it looks as though it never really went down. So what they're probably experiencing, what I'm understanding is a peak of a first wave, you know, sort of having multiple peaks, but they're not, it never really went down. As I understand, yeah. Australia really looks like it went down. It looks like there was a series of cases that went up and went down in March-ish and That's three right. or four months later there really does look like there's a completely new new wave so this would be a true second wave are you aware of any other places that are experiencing this outside Australia no. a true second wave no I think I think we really are pretty unique in this I think yeah. it, but it is quite dramatic it, we were getting so close I mean and I think we were getting so close that people were starting to say that we could actually go for elimination as as New Zealand yeah. has yes we are really getting there. We had multiple states that had no new cases for weeks and weeks and weeks. New South Wales and Victoria, which are, of course, our most populous states, were really getting down. And then, wham, suddenly it's right back up again. And now we're all on high alert. All the borders are shutting down. Um, you know, everyone's really feeling quite nervous. Do you have a sense of what, like what was the culprit? Or was it just this general reopening? We're seeing it. I'll give you an example. So in um, the US, any group that has... Uh, seen a surge, we'll call it surge of a first wave, let's say, um, they've all reopened. And when reopening really led to younger individuals really getting out and getting about, um, and the demographic seems to be much younger um, and, and, and in terms of new cases, Colombia, for example, Bogota, same thing, the young are getting infected and then fear is they're going to bring it back and infect yeah, the elderly. It's been quite different here. I mean, we were, you know, really, and we were starting to open up. I mean, we're certainly starting to open up with the university. We've got a very stringent, um, and I've, I've got oversight of the health measures for our universities. Yeah. They're putting in place um, procedures so that people can start to safely come back to work. And we're looking forward to welcoming uh, some of our students face-to-face -face, uh, right. next um, in September. But what happened in Victoria was that we have, I mean, and, and you may well know that our borders are shut. So one of the yeah. um, aspects, our very successful strategy has actually been to shut the borders and not to allow international travel. Anyone that comes in has had to quarantine for 14 days in a hotel that the government pays for. We don't allow anyone. I mean, for example, you wouldn't be able to come to yeah. Australia unless you had some sort of critical essential yes, business. Yes. Right. What happened in Victoria, though, is that um, in other states, we had police and the Australian Defence Forces guarding the hotel rooms. In Victoria, what appears to have happened is that they hired private security guards these security guards weren't well trained, um, or certainly not well trained enough. And we had some uh, infection of the security guards, and I won't tell you how that happened, but you could probably guess. Yep. Um, and they security guards went back to their families, big family gatherings. Um, it was the time of Ramadan. People were having huge family celebrations at the time. We were starting to open up, and mm. it spread. 
So look, it's been really unfortunate. It really, and it really does come back to actually probably, um, you know, privatised security firms and, and and lack of training, and that's that's really where it started from. And from there, um, it's gone to uh, big workplaces, so some abattoirs where people were working. It's spread, you know, rampant um, spread there, and from there out into the community. And then, of course, we've seen people travelling. So in New South Wales now. We now have, um, we actually now have, a, we have outbreaks in New South Wales because of travellers from Victoria that have come across the border and now we're seeing, we've got all these hotspots in New South Wales. Fortunately at the moment, what we're seeing is that, you know, and everyone's watching the numbers day by day. Fortunately, what we see is of all the new cases, they're all still linked. We can actually still identify where they're coming from and from which cluster and our contact tracing is incredibly strong our testing and contact tracing so we're pretty confident we're going to get it back under control pretty quickly um but you know these things happen no and the thing is i think even if i recall i mean the strength of the first you know of, of the first approach that australia used was you know was exactly what you were saying you had said that there was identify who has it quickly through testing, find out who they've been in contact with and really isolate, isolate, isolate as quick as you find them out and, you know, maintain some degree of, of a migration control around who's moving around and what's happening. It yeah. sounds like that you'll get this under control relatively, um, you know, relatively quickly. But I guess this gets back to this bigger issue that, you know, that I've been struggling with because, you know, when we chatted probably uh, late April, I would have said, you know, um, probably 2020 for us is going to be like this. We're not going to have a vaccine. We're not going to likely have a, a meaningful treatment. I can tell you though, looking into, um, you know, heading into August, I don't have that optimism anymore from speaking with, you know, others. I'm curious what your barometer is telling you about when do we, and I don't want to use the word normal because there's no such thing, but what, what does this mean for you in terms of the fact that you can have a I mean, a third wave could come up. I mean, we keep talking about a second as though that's the finale, but it's never really eradicated until we've gotten zero cases. And I don't see that happening in 2020. And I don't actually don't see it happening in 2021 right now, quite frankly. No, look, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think we're really looking towards the end of next year to get any sense of um, normality back. I mean, I think yeah. just coming back to Victoria, I mean, at the moment, they've shut down all elective surgery again to prepare the hospitals for the next for the outbreaks and for the you know patients that need to go into intensive care so again everything goes on hold we've got we've got i mean a lot of people are very worried about the lack of people coming to emergency departments going in for cancer treatment you know there's going to be a huge burden of <clears throat> chronic disease and cancer in the community because people just aren't going to get treatment and people aren't you know aren't comfortable going out in public it's a <clears throat> it's a really hard question <clears throat> excuse me no. that's not a cough i'll just let you know that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um i think we really are, I mean, it's interesting because as I say, we're looking at opening up the university, but we're really getting the sense also that people aren't, you know, people, students aren't that keen to come back to face-to-face -face experiences. They're sort of saying, well, no, actually, we're quite comfortable studying online. Workers are saying the same thing. We're looking at new flexible working practices for the university because more people are saying, well, actually, no, we'll come in a day or two, but, you know, we don't need to come in more than that. And I think the way in which we live our lives is going to be quite different. Yeah. It is interesting though to think, I mean, you know, again, when you think about research and I was just bemoaning this to someone today and saying, I need to sit down and start thinking about my next programs of work. As you know, we've been doing a whole lot of work on models of care for hip fracture. Yes. Um, right. We're just starting to think, well, actually I can't write those grants because those that work can't be done at the moment. And whatever we do has got to be modified. So I'm starting to think now about, as you are, 
for how much longer is this going to impact the way in which we do anything? So clinical research, how do we need to modify it? Does every single thing that we think about have to have a lens of um, COVID over it and thinking, well, how do we do this in the times of COVID? So look, you're thinking about telehealth. When we think about models of care, it's like, well, what does a model of care look like in this new strange world that we're living in? And for how much longer is that going to last for? Um, you know, because, I mean, we know we're waiting with bated breath for a vaccine, but no one really knows how effective a vaccine is likely to be. It might help dampen things, but, you know, if it doesn't, if, it, if the effectiveness doesn't last for all that long, we know from experience with every other infectious disease around the world, it's almost impossible to effectively vaccinate everyone in the whole world. Um, and that's essentially what needs to be done for this kind of condition. Um, so it's actually not, even if we had, you know, a good vaccine next year, it's going to take several years for us to actually get really decent coverage around the globe. So, you know, this whole thing of borders being shut, um, research being dampened down, you know, the way in which we live being quite a lot different. I, I can see that staying for the next, you know, couple of years at least. And yeah, and you know, the thing that's been, that, that has been fascinating is in the first two or three months, anyone I spoke with, around the world had the same narrative which was we'll get over this once we're over this we'll be back and i have a feeling that everyone's really you know wanting to get back to university they want to get back to the groups the big meetings you know you and i travel and do a lot of big meetings we want to get back to those but there is a period of time where um you know we're in this now for several months then we get into it for a year you have two years it is very difficult to go back because it just becomes the way you do things and you become efficient in whatever model you're using we are heading in that direction where, you know, the six, 700 person meeting, as much as I'd love it, you know, I won't, I'm, I'm not missing it anymore as much as I was missing it three months ago. And you're slowly adapting. Do you, like, even from the group of just large gatherings, um, do you see large gatherings in the three, four, 500 range happening in 2021? And if they do happen, whether it's academic or whether it's, you know, from other reasons, how would that look even? I mean, would everyone have to be distanced? Would they all have to be in masks? I mean, that's the, that's the unknown, but I do not see us congregating. Would you even want to go if you had no. to be distanced no. mask? Yeah, you're true, true. I mean, and that's the point. We don't have a, we don't have a, you know, it's a virus and, uh, you know, you get a vaccine. Who knows? Who knows what that's going to be? And this is all just pure conjecture. But, but getting back then, getting back to, um, you know, the way forward, what's happening right now, um, specifically in Australia. And I suspect that it's not a unified, you know, I mean, everywhere seems to have a regional approach. And I suspect that it's not just a, you know, just a broad blanket approach, but I imagine that you're doing the same things you did in the first quote wave in terms of managing, tracing everyone, finding them, finding their contacts, and then uh, going back to uh, just isolation. Isolation meaning, you know, distancing policies. Absolutely. Yeah. And it really is. We, I think we're really lucky in New South Wales and in Australia. I mean, remembering we've got a relatively small population. We have states, we have good geographic distance between the big cities. So yeah. moderately easy for us to actually shut that down. So once the borders get shut, then we can also shut. We are now seeing um, closing of the borders across states. Um, the Queensland Premier just suddenly announced that she was going to shut the border um, and no one from Sydney could visit Queensland, um, you know, which was pretty dramatic. Um, I understand there's a class action against um, the state of uh, Victoria, uh, sorry, Western Australia, to actually stop people getting into Western Australia. And actually, um, you know, people are very upset about that. But I mean, really not unreasonable because, you know, you've got a state that's got no cases. You really don't want to be letting, letting people in. But 
On the other hand, the government's working pretty actively to try and keep things open. Um, I know in New South Wales, we are teetering. So there's a lot of dialogue at the moment from everyone um, saying, we are on a knife edge. We've got a two week period now where we're really waiting to see if this outbreak in Victoria is gonna impact us. Um, I think a lot of people are staying at home, but we haven't shut down. So the bars are still operating. They have restricted oh. bars and hotels. Um, today, we had a new announcement saying that every gym had to have a COVID warden. So someone, so, you know, we have these gyms where you have, you know, no, 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 no people there. They're saying, no, you've got to have someone there to monitor, to wash down gyms because they've been highlighted as a, a, a place of risk. So there's things happening. I think everyone, I mean, I, I have to say, everyone's walking around going, oh, we better go out and have lunch while we can because everyone's sort of anticipating another lockdown. But the reality is, and, you know, you'll be well aware, I mean, the economic impact of another lockdown mm. is absolutely huge. And you know, the country really is already going to be in debt for, you know, decades to come because of this. So I think there's a kind of got to get the balance right between public health, shutting down, um, contact tracing and managing and sort of trying to keep enough of the economy running that we're not going to cripple ourselves. You see the worldview uh, also. I mean, like you, you know, like um, for sure, I know the work you've been done is international. What do you see uh, like happening? Like, how do you see, like, you know, places that you're routinely working with and other collaborators, are they having the same experience? Is this a unified experience from your perspective? And quite frankly, it's one thing to even try to get work done in Australia, for us, let's say in Canada, which is, you know, you can slowly putter along. But because our work is so international, um, even if we seem to be like we've got it under control, when, when a neighbor is on fire, so to speak, it's very difficult really to, to move anything forward. I mean, I really think until the world is resolved somehow the economy the world economy cannot resume i don't know no, it's really interesting i mean i've got um people that i work with in china for example and i've right. got trust partners and collaborators there and you know we're in a really we've, we've got we've got joint work that's going on at the moment and variously it shuts down so we'll be saying all right we'll have a meeting and the person will say oh no i can't because we've got another outbreak and we've all been seconded to work on covid so we're not going to yes. talk for two and then we'll come back. So things quiet down and it depends on what city people are in. So, but things are a bit, you know, a bit like us here, sort of moving along, you do bits and pieces. I've got yeah. one of my students in Beijing is going out, able to go and do um, in-depth interviews with, uh, with patients post hip fracture doing rehabilitation. But, you know, in another three months, who would know? But we just, I think people are just sort of getting, taking the opportunity when they can. I've got, I've just come off a teleconference with um, collaborators in Bangladesh. Um, and again, yeah. likewise, um, the, you know, fortunately that big study that we did, we just did a sort of community-wide survey with hundreds of thousands of people. Unfortunately, that just finished in February. So we were very lucky to get that up. Wow. Get yeah. that done. Um, but, you know, I've got, I've got new work starting up there and it's the same thing again. It's going to be around um, just taking the opportunity when you can. But really the work for me is really predicated around, and I think, Actually, it's important when you think about global health because, you know, really, if we are going to decolonise global health, it's about building local research capacity so people can really, you know, if you're in Bangladesh, we want Bangladeshi researchers leading, leading the way. So, you know, actually, we might want to start thinking about this as being an opportunity in a way really to actually truly have capacity development and growth of um, leading investigators in each of those countries because other people uh, can't go in there. So we can support people virtually i think zoom and teams are really great ways for us to do that and I, I do actually i think we have to look at it as being a bit of a 
a transformation and saying, well, this might be the opportunity that we've been waiting for to actually really push things along. Now, it's going to be challenging um, getting the support and the infrastructure in um, to support people in that way. But I think, I think we can also look at it as being an, an opportunity going forward. And in, maybe as one of the final questions just for, the, for this really uh, helpful update is, in your role as head in the School of Public Health, and you've, you've mentioned a couple of times that you know school will begin, you're gonna have students who are interested in getting back, at least there's a group of them. Is that the pervasive feeling that, 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 that students, graduate students, students wanna get back, they wanna get back to classes or are they, we're okay, we're okay to stay this way. And quite frankly, what are the, what are the I guess, things you're putting in place um, as you resume sort of classroom activities, if in fact I'm making the assumption that classroom activities will resume? Yeah, look, I, I mean, that's a really good question about whether or not students actually want to come back. Um, and I think we, we, we have some that would like to come. We have some international students that are in Sydney that have stayed here during the um, shutdown and, and they, they really do want to come um, because, you know, they, they, that's what they're paying for. They want value. They want to be able to sit down and see their lecturers. For our domestic students, not so interested and and we're lucky in in fact in terms of our postgraduate programs that ours have been fully online for a long time so we're quite familiar with teaching online and so it's not we we've always run things um in dual mode so face to face and online so you know it hasn't been such a, a you know a hard issue for the for the rest of the university though um and again we're trying to get a sense from the students as to how many will come back um, some students definitely want to have that face-to-face -face experience, but we're really unsure about the demand. With, with respect to what we're putting in place, so we, we are basically, we, there's a four square metre rule, so you have to actually have you know, four square metres per person. The universities have been exempted from that to say, well, you don't actually have to adhere to that, this is special circumstances. We still will probably maintain that or, and, or at least maintain the spacing so that we allow at least one and a half metres of space between people. So classrooms will be spaced. If we can't get enough teaching rooms big enough to fit those classes, so you know, with large undergraduate classes, you'll often have hundreds of people. We'll have a rostering system. So some people might be rostered to come one week and then, and, and then have the next week at home. So we're just grappling with that at the moment. Um, I think we are, for the university, our return to work process is pretty complicated. So for staff and say graduate research students, um, up until now, um, everyone's actually, to return to work, people have actually had to put in an application. They've got to do a mandatory online training module to say, so that they understand what the risks are around COVID before they come back. They've got to, um, their local units got to have, um, look at physical distancing. So we've got a lot of signage up. We've got decals everywhere, signs in the lifts. We've got hand sanitizers in, installed in the buildings. We've got disinfectant and um, wipes scattered around buildings so people can wipe down their own areas and lift buttons and things like that. Um, and then if people are in proxy close proximity, so if people can't maintain physical distancing, we're actually asking people to wear face masks as well. So if people are in labs or there's an instructor looking over your shoulder to demonstrate something, we're asking them to wear masks. And, you know, we, we, we think that's really important. Um, we will be looking, um, obviously, if the numbers drop right back down, then we will look at modifying that. But at the moment, this is something that we actually feel is really important as just to give people comfort as, as, as they're coming back in. And it also allows us to know who's on campus. So people aren't, staff and graduate students aren't allowed back on campus unless they've been through that process. So that if we do have an outbreak, 
we know who's been there and we can quickly identify them. So, you know, it's taken, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of work getting that up, but we really has, it, it has, you know, been really important. Um, and this is all, all systems go right now as planned in the next few months when you start up. I mean, so this is a planned startup in the next few months. Okay. Yeah, well, we have staff back. So we've, okay. we've got, we've got a few thousand people already approved. To oh, be back okay. on, and there's certainly people back on campus now. So there's, you know, there's lab experiments and things like that yeah. that need to running and the, the the challenge is going to be and i think what we're grappling with at the moment and and clinical research is ongoing in hospitals so if you're doing clinical research in hospitals that hasn't really stopped i think i think okay. there'll be situations where people you know that was trials will have stopped but often you know they've been able to keep going clinical research on campus is going to be something different where we think we've actually got um you know vulnerable populations on campus that's that's a different story I, I myself have got um, I've got several studies that I've just had to stop. So I've got one big um, cluster randomised control trial of a, a full prevention program for older Indigenous people. So you can imagine very vulnerable populations. So older people, lots of comorbidities, living in rural and remote locations in many cases where there's not good care. And then our staff were going to be travelling out to those places to train and to do research collection, data collection and um, train up the local, the local workers. And of course, that had to completely stop. I've got no idea when we're going to be able to start that or if indeed we are actually going to be able to start that up again. Probably we will be running it in a couple of states where we have much lower community transmission, but you know, this is just too important. You know, we do not want to risk bringing COVID into any any um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. And, you know, we, we stopped that very early on. So there's lots of interesting questions about those kind of studies and how we how we move forward. And, uh, and you know, quite frankly, I don't know the answer to them. Yeah. You know, and I know you had said this um, in just maybe as we were discussing it, you sort of under your breath had mentioned, you know, it's going to change the way we do research and what what we even do and the impact of this because right now everything has been so COVID. Find a vaccine, do trials. Find a treatment, do trials. Um, but really, all of the non-COVID related impact, I don't even think that we have a good sense of just how the magnitude of that impact is. And maybe research has to start thinking about what's happened because anything we do in our health system, let's just say that we had just took the same studies we were doing before and we're in reintroducing them now, they're in a whole different environment. They're in a different psychological environment for patients, surgical environment, access environment. All those things have to have some influence on, you know, on things that that are different. And uh, you know, some some may work better, I suspect, but I think many are going to be, you know, uh, harmed. You know, they're going to be harmed rather than help. Um, and you know, access to care is a big one for sure. But I don't know. It's an interesting time, and I'm not sure I know that. The future program but any program we have has to have this lens now of this new world of managing through distancing managing through risk managing through mental health i think uh, as a few of them anyway absolutely and i mean i think the danger is that we get really caught up so what what we're particularly concerned about at the moment from a research perspective having a great amount of funding being put out there for covid related research around vaccines implementation delivery of clinical services, how we do telehealth, but what we can't neglect is all the other really important things. So prevention research, um, you know, there are all these, we, we, we know that those things are really important and we know that they're going to be neglected and we, we, can't, we cannot let that fall off the, um, you know, off the radar. And, you know, all the other things that you and I do around clinical research that's oh, yeah. non-related, how we, you know, how we get better value healthcare, how we deliver more effective, efficient treatment. 
that's still really going to be important to know how to do efficient surgery. So again, I mean, I think we start thinking about questions around how, you know, what's the best way of doing hip fracture surgery in times of coronavirus? Um, you know, they're important questions. But, you know, we also want to make sure we know that with people in lockdown, people are doing, you know, potentially could be eating less well, people could be actually exercising less, we're probably going to see a rise of obesity related conditions, mental health related conditions, suicide and so on. So, you know, we, we do need to actually keep our finger on the pulse. And I think also not, we need to make sure we value the right type of research. You no, know, clinical trials are really important and all the sort of work around prior, you know, integrated care and models of care. But we actually also need to make sure we, you know, the social sciences are emphasised as well, because actually understanding barriers to care, understanding all those important questions around communication and, and, and how we effectively communicate with people is also going to be critically important now as, as the world changes, as we seek to understand what, what strange new world it is that we've sort of morphed into um, so, so rapidly and so unexpectedly. And I would say that um, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that you and I will chat again in a few months. It seems that we're going to have to have this continuing, um, that we'll have a slightly different lens on what's happened. I'm hopeful that I'm not contacting you anytime I hear something that's happening, you know, around the world. And Australia has something up with, oh, I've got to talk to you. Um, and it's mostly because you want to have a sense of somebody, you know, because information is rampant. Misinformation is probably doubly rampant. Um, so finding just voices that of reason and voices of thought and voices of data makes it so much easier to weed through all of the noise. And so I can't thank you enough, um, Rebecca, Dr. Ivers, for uh, taking time to give us some signal in all of this noise today. Um, and I'm sure the ortho evidence community will really appreciate uh, the insights and we'll keep doing what we try to do, which is informing and, and uh, collecting information to help us inform. So thank you so much for that.